You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi, folks. Welcome to episode 110 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchat, and this is the show for November 2022. It is a solo show this month, so just little old me. And it's somewhat of a potpourri show because I have two things I want to talk about, and they're neither quite long enough to make it a whole show. So I'm just going to do both. So it's going to be, I guess, a two-parter in a way. So the first part of the show, I'm going to talk about my experiences so far of shooting raw on the iPhone, and then some thoughts on shooting autumn shots, given that we're now coming to the end of that season. And I just sort of want to take a moment, or in fact, I took some time to look back at uh, what I've shot this autumn, and just to see if if that brings up any useful suggestions, and also to go through the exercise of picking out my favourites, just so I, you know, know which, which my best work of the autumn so far is. Okay, so my thoughts on enabling RAW mode on my iPhone 14 Pro. So the way it works on the iPhones is that you have a setting in the camera app settings, which you will find in the settings app, not in the camera app. And when you enable, there's a toggle there to turn on Pro RAW. And that doesn't mean that you are getting every single photo in RAW, what that means is that you now have a button that appears in the camera app as you're taking pictures to allow you to toggle RAW on and off in the same way you toggle the flash on and off and so forth. And, it, it you know, it's it's an interesting approach because RAW files are much, much bigger. They're also slower to load when you're editing and stuff. So you probably don't actually want them all on, but you do want it to be easy to quickly tap the button and, and take a particular shot that's not a snapshot in RAW. And I wasn't sure how well it would work. Would I remember to push the button? Uh, Well, the answer is yes. So it does work because the button's in a prominent enough place that it catches, certainly for me, it captures my eye. And when I'm taking in an arty shot, for want of a better word, I just tap the little button and I get it in. I get that shot in raw mode and all the rest of my snapshots are not in raw mode, which is kind of what I want. So the practicalities of it certainly work. Um, Another thing to say is that this is Apple's Pro RAW. So if you have a DSLR and you shoot in RAW mode, what you're actually getting is the sensor data directly from the camera. So right from the sensors. So that means you have to have an app that can interpret your particular camera brand's RAW sensor data. Also means that all of the pre-processing that's normally done by the camera is not done, is skipped. So when you get a raw file from a DSLR into a photo editing app, it's going to look really flat. It's going to have very little contrast, going to have no sharpness. That's because you basically have to do it all yourself. Um, Now you might wonder, how could that possibly work with something like an iPhone, where we talked about last time, you know, the question is, how many cameras does the iPhone have? Well, it depends. Well, if you're reading raw data from the sensor, how many sensors are involved in making your image? It could be one, it could be two, it could be three. How do you work with that in true raw? And the answer is, you don't. 
So pro raw, one of the things that makes it pro raw is that it's it's a pseudo raw format, I guess. Um, it's a it reminds me a lot of Adobe's DNG digital negative format, where it's a genericized version of raw. So Nikon and Canon have their own raw formats that are widely enough used that photo apps will understand. I think I can't remember what Canon's file extension is, but Nikon is NEF. Uh, so you can take a NEF file and open it in Photoshop, whatever, and it'll read the NEF file. Just so that's actually Nikon's proprietary format. And if you're a smaller camera maker, you're not going to get your proprietary format recognized. So Adobe created an open standard for pseudo raw files called DNG, digital negative. And so Olympus and so forth tend to use DNG files. And Apple's approach here reminds me a lot of DNG because it's a, it has the same data as you would get in a raw file, but it's in a standardized format. So it's not going to change over the years as Apple sensors change. And it sits, because it's a pseudo raw file and it has all the data, it's sitting at a different point in the image capture chain. So it's not actually the raw sensor data. So because it could be multiple sensors involved. So if you think of your iPhone, the light hits one or more of the sensors, that thing gets run through a whole bunch of circuitry, the whole bunch of um, software, digital signal processing and stuff. And then the data is ready to be distilled down to a JPEG to basically throw away the extra bit information, the extra color information. And it's at the point where it would be throwing away the extra bit depth. So in other words, the extra amount of difference between darkest and lightest and the extra color information uh, as it's doing a white balance interpretation. So the point where it would throw that away is the point where it gets shoved into the pro raw. So you're getting the outcome of the all the magic of the neural engine and all of that uh, computational photography. You're going to get before that gets thrown away to become an 8-bit JPEG. So it's actually really quite good. So what you have in there is all of your color data, all of your bit depth, and also, in fact, Apple's depth map is still in there as well. So you can you can mess around with the depth of field and stuff as well. So it's actually a very clever raw format. Or I guess probably better to say a pseudo raw format because it's not a traditional raw format, but there's a lot of extra information in there. So when it comes to editing your shot, what it means for you as a photographer is that the sliders can do more. So you can recover more highlights. You can do better color correction because the color information hasn't been thrown away. So you can swing around the white balance sliders without it getting all unrealistic more as quickly. Which is very similar to the advantages you get from a raw image from a DSLR. So when you're editing, you just have more to work with. The price you pay is obviously bigger files, but also it is distinctly slower. If you're in the camera, if you're looking at your photos app and you click onto a raw photo and you click the edit button, it takes noticeably longer, even on the iPhone 14 Pro, to open that image for editing. When you're done editing and you hit save, it takes noticeably longer for that image to save back to your camera roll. So the price you pay is definitely that it's doing a lot more computation to open and to save those images. So it definitely will slow you down a bit, a little bit in the editing. But all in all, particularly when shooting in strong dynamic ranges, you know, um, fluffy white clouds, those kind of things, it it is actually, I like shooting in raw. It gives me just a little bit more power with all of my different sliders. So on the whole, quite happy with the experience and I'm going to continue to experiment with it. I haven't done a lot of experimentation with third-party apps, so I don't think this is the last I'll share with you about my experience of moving to RAW. But so far, so good. I'm liking it. Okay, well, moving on then to part two. 
What is it I would like to say to you about shooting photographs in autumn? Every single year, I mean, I'm a lover of nature. I live in a beautiful place. Every single year I see these amazing autumn colours and I want to capture how beautiful, how absolutely stunning the autumn displays are. In real life, it is a real wow factor. And I struggle each and every single year to do that feeling justice in my photographs. I am getting better at it. Gosh darn, it's hard work. So I guess the TLDR is that I did manage to come away with some shots this year that I'm genuinely proud of. Basically shots that I would be happy, in fact, to print out and hang on the wall. I think they are, they are genuinely good photographs, in my opinion. So they are linked in the show notes. I'll, I'll describe them later on. Um, but there's four I've sort of picked as being like, you know, the ultimate keepers from this year's autumn season or fall for you Americans. Um, but the two, the two things I, okay, something I've struggled with for years and years is to get the colour to feel as amazing as it looks. And then the other thing that tends to happen in autumn is that you tend to have mist and fog. And particularly in the in the morning, in that sort of the golden hour in the morning or in the late evening on a still day, you tend to get these beautiful blankets of mist. And they feel almost dreamy and they feel wonderful when you're outside, assuming you're appropriately dressed. But they're extremely difficult to capture. So, so they're the two things I particularly struggle with is the colour and the mist. So I just want to, I guess, talk about each of those two things independently. So in order to get the colour to work, I have a couple of things that work for me. But that, and I'm not saying these are the, the way to capture autumn colour. I mean, there are, there are probably infinity ways. But in my struggles, these are my thoughts that have helped me to get shots that I, I'm happy with. So I have found that for the background colour to f- to feel right, you need to set the tone in the viewer's mind that this is an autumn shot. And the best way I have found to do that is you can focus the mind on it being autumn-y, then the colours in the background have more impact. And the only way I've succeeded in really... Or, one of the best ways I've succeeded in doing that is to get a good, strong, autumn-y foreground which sets the tone of the shot. And then that background colour has more impact. It just, the colour on its own doesn't quite seem to have enough impact. For it to really hit you, I think you do actually need to have the that extra little bit of context. And so foreground interest, I have found to be a really effective way of doing that. And you're going to sound a bit like a stuck record here, but low and wide, I'm finding to work extremely well, um, either with a scattering of leaves as foreground texture or a particularly nice, what I call a hero leaf that you could use to really dominate that foreground. So one single leaf that, that is the star of the image. Um, ironically, of course, one of my favourite shots of this particular shooting season has uh, broke all of those rules because they're not rules, they're just guidelines. And it's actually a shot where it's reflection that is doing the work, not foreground interest. And so technically speaking, it's a shot with no foreground at all, but two backgrounds. Just, you know, one one, one way around and one the other way around. It's actually a reflection of autumn colours in the canal. And it, I'm really happy with it, but it, it does not meet my normal rule of 
having a strong foreground set the autumn-y feel. The other thing I have noticed over the years, and again, I've paid particular attention to it this year with good effect, is to be careful of colour because the temptation is to warm the colours to make the autumn colours warmer. You would think more orange, more better. But actually it isn't. For your brain to feel that the oranges and the reds and the yellows are dramatic and spectacular is to give your eye contrast within the same image. And I mean that in a colour sense, not in the lightness-darkness sense. So if you have a nice orange on its own, if you take that identical orange and you put it into a shot which has cool, you know, crisp blues, rich, lush greens, then that yellow, orange or red and the leaf will really sing. Because your eye is going, I'm not being tricked. That blue is not all washed out and muddy. That's a really blue blue. And that green, that's a really green green. So that means the white balance is accurate in this scene, which means that that amazing orange really is that amazing orange. And so the temptation is definitely to warm the sliders to make the orange more orange. But actually, I have found that if you want to cheat a little bit to make the oranges pop, nudge the warmth slider the other way. Not a lot, right? Because you don't want to turn anything unnatural. But your camera will probably have balanced, particularly if shooting in the golden area, your camera will have balanced towards the goldy colours. Pull it back a bit by cooling the colours, so towards the blue. And make your blues and or your greens as lush or as you know royal blue as you, as you can get it to look realistic. And that contrast will, technically speaking, if you measure the pixels, have slightly reduced the yellowness of your yellow, the oranges of your orange, the redness of your red. But the effect on how you feel about the photograph is the exact opposite. The bluer blues and the greener greens will make the oranges, yellows and reds feel more dramatic. It will really make them pop. So I find that to be very effective. You know, absolutely you do not want muddy, muddy greens and muddy blues. Will not work. Uh, the other thing is if you can't get greens and blues, um, a, a neutral dark grey or black can also work pretty well to set off a colour. But again, you want to make sure that there's no feeling of a colour cast in that grey. It needs to be a neutral grey or black. And that neutrality will then make the colour pop in the leaf, whatever. So they are my two tips, particularly actually the first one of cooling the colour balance to make the yellows and oranges pop, which is not what you might think, but I find that to be really effective this year. So moving on then to capturing mist. Right, I have found that when it comes to capturing photographs of mist, I am very often fighting against my camera, which is trying to Basically, the camera sees the mist and says, oh my goodness, what a lack of contrast. I must address this lack of contrast. But of course, the softness, the lack of contrast is exactly what you're trying to capture. So it is definitely the case that I have found that in certain situations, the camera is trying to work against me. Um, But there are ways around that. And one of the interesting ways is if your scene has like a layer of mist instead of all pervasive mist. So if you're not in a bank of fog, there's a low mist over the ground. If your shot contains both misty and not misty pieces, the camera won't get nearly as confused because it will use the 
non-misted parts of the image to figure out what the appropriate level of contrast to dial in is. And that will then have the effect that if, if the not misty bits look right, the misty bits will also look as they should, i.e. misty. Um, so, you know, if you can try to get a layer, you can try it so that your whole shot isn't misty, that definitely helps. Now, if you're in a bank of fog, that's just not going to happen. And then what you're kind of hoping, I guess, the best you can hope for is that you, you end up with the background going towards a high key, close to, but not actually blowing out. And that should cause the distant objects to disappear into the mist, which is kind of the effect you want. What I've also found is that if you can magnify or amplify the amount of mist that is between you and your background, the better it's going to look. So zooming is an extremely effective way to do that. So a lot of my mist shots I was using... So instead of going low and wide, I was still going low a lot at the time because I still wanted a nice foreground. But instead of going low and 0.5 zoom, I might go to low 1, 2, or even 3. And zooming has a compression effect on your midgrounds and your backgrounds. So if you do that, you're getting more fog. You're amplifying the fog, basically, with that compression. And that's what you want if you're trying to get that feeling. So definitely zoom, zoom, zoom had definitely helped me capture the fog better. And the other thing is, if it's a bank of fog, definitely helped me to get lower into it. So there was more. So I was literally seeing through more of the fog. Therefore, I had more of a chance of affecting the shot. So just hunkering down to get that layer of fog definitely helped. But zoom, 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 probably the most effective thing I was able to do. So I'm just going to finish up by saying that the show notes have links to what I've picked as my four favorite autumn shots of the year. And I guess I'll just sort of talk through them. You can look along in the show notes. And they're in chronological order because I couldn't decide which was the quote unquote best shot. So my first autumn shot of the year is an example where it has some low hanging mist, which was actually captured uh, by getting down low and looking through it. But the mist wasn't enough to dominate the scene. I was kind of hoping to capture the mist, but it just it wasn't enough. So I kept walking until I found a scattering of leaves and I went with that whole scattered leaves to give you the autumn feel. So it's a shot taken at Maynooth University uh, and the old campus uh, with the college chapel dominating the horizon. And literally it's the golden hour. The sun has just risen. It hasn't quite shifted the layer of fog. The dew is still on the grass. It's not frost, it's dew. And that low sun is actually catching the golden orange linden trees on the campus. And so you're getting the foreground interest and the sense of this is autumn from that scatter of leaves. And they're not, they're actually pretty boring leaves. Like the, the leaves are no way hero leaves here. They are brown and boring, but they do say autumn. And that's enough for the golden colors in the midground and background to do their work because the foreground is setting context. And the whole thing has a nice sense of depth because it's down low. Now it's not low and wide, it's low and zoomed in a bit uh, because again, getting that compression on the mist. And the mist is there, but it's not, it would not work on its own. And I really can hope that the mist would be the hero of the shot, but the mist is just an addition to the shot. It's, I had to get more to make the photograph work. So second shot then is um, take two effectively at getting the mist. And in this case, it was zoomed, it was zoomed all the way. So that's the, the 3x zoom on the iPhone. And so the foreground is actually not in my foreground. I needed something of foreground interest that was actually quite a distance away from me because I'd zoomed in at 3x. The foreground interest needed to be pretty much in the midground. But it still makes the foreground of the photograph. And so this is a shot taken. Um, there's uh, the housing I said uh, where we bought our house is 
adjoined by an old farm. It's basically in the land that used to be the farm. Uh, but one of the meadows around the, the old farm has been retained. And so there's this lovely old meadow and there's lots of views across the meadow from all the various pathways and stuff. Uh, one of those views looks towards the village of Maynooth and you can see the church spire on the horizon and obviously the rest of the houses in the distance, at the other end of the field. And one of the mornings, it was clear, It was the sun hadn't risen yet, so it was a little bit earlier than the other shot, so there's no breaking light of the sun, the sun is still below the horizon, but it's already started to turn this, the bottom part of the sky a beautiful salmon pink, and the top of the sky is blue, and the ground is obviously still green, and there's this layer of mist just hanging there because it's a perfectly still morning. And by zooming in at 3x and getting myself sort of, my head at about fog level, it was enough to amplify it so that the mist actually is the hero of this shot. So the mist takes up the whole mid-ground, the foreground gives a bit of context, but it, it's conveniently actually due to the shade from trees and stuff, it's actually darker naturally, I didn't even have to do a vignette. Um, so you have a darker foreground, which helps to pull the eye into the mid-ground where the fog is, and then you just have a nice sky as a background. And the camera white balanced that to have golden coloured grass, but that, again, really didn't help it feel right did not help having this with the sky colours and stuff. And the mist was muddy looking instead of what it looked like in real life, which is distinctly white. So it was very important that I nudge the colour balance a little bit to the warm to get that mist white. So that way the mist was able to stand out. Really pleased with how that one came out, actually, given how much it struggled with mists weeks before. Then we come to the shot I already sort of mentioned. The one I just said, break the rules because they just look too nice. Um, so this is a reflection of autumn colours in the Royal Canal, just at a train station in Maynooth Village. And it's again a little bit later in the morning, so it's, it's arguably maybe just outside the golden hour. So the sun is actually high enough up that the sky has turned blue-blue. But it's still quite a low sun, which is definitely helping to pick up the oranges in the uh, leaves of the trees. And so we have a very vibrant blue sky reflected in the canal. So the blues are very strong, which means that the not all that strong orange in the trees is at its absolute best because they're not, it's, we're not talking about Canada here with the most amazing oranges. These are much more subtle oranges in Ireland. But because the blue is so strong, the oranges are able to sing. And the reflection just does the trick, actually. Um, I sort of arranged it in such a way that there was a taller tree at the edge of the frame. So you get a triangular field, that sort of funnel the eye into the shot. And then at the other end of the triangular funnel is the arch of Mullen Bridge um, across the canal. And then again, it's the colours are, are sort of the star of the show. But there's enough structure in the composition of the image to, to make it interesting. The fact that it's a pointy triangle gives it a bit of depth as well. And your eye is just naturally pulled from the foreground through the midground out to the background under the bridge. So it's, I'm very pleased with that shot. I think it came out very well. And then my last one is an example of a hero image and of a bank of mist. And so with a bank of mist, the best you can hope for is that the background fades away. And to do that, it was again, get the compression from zooming. So that's a 2x zoom that time. and. I got down low, but not low and wide, low and zoomed in. So that hero leaf, which completely dominates the front of the shot, is probably a meter in front of me because I'm zoomed in. Um, so I found my hero leaf and stepped back until it would fit into the frame at the, at the zoom level. 
Uh, but the hero leaf, it, it, it's the nicest orange leaf I could find. It's on its own, so it's not, there's no other leaf in it. I mean, there are other leaves in the photograph. There's no other leaf adjoined directly touching it. It's not overlapping. So it's distinctly maple shape is free to speak for itself. It's on a neutral colored uh, asphalt. So again, the neutral color helps the orange on the leaf to pop because you know you're not being tricked with. Also helps with those nice greens on some of the trees in the midground. Um, and then there's lots more nice oranges as well for the back of the image. And it's all fading away into the mist. So I'm very pleased actually with that. Well, that's probably uh, my best hero leaf image. I did. I tried lots of different shots of maple leaves and that is the one that actually works. Okay, uh, so that's been my autumn experience for 2022 and some thoughts and tips um, which you may or may not find helpful. I am going to draw a line under it here. Just a reminder that you will find detailed show notes, including links to the four images I described at let's-talk.ie. While you're there, you'll see there's a collection of big blue buttons under a heading, support the show. I want to thank everyone who does or ever has supported the show in any way. The two main ways are PayPal donation, which is a great way to give a one-off larger donation. Uh, It's PayPal... PayPal's fee structure is such that giving $1 is stupendously inefficient. Um, PayPal keep 40 cent of that dollar and I only get 60 cent, which is not a particularly efficient way of helping. Uh, Whereas if you give $5, then PayPal only takes, I think it's 79 cents. So it's a much more efficient, much, much more efficient. It's less than a quarter that goes to PayPal instead of um, nearly a half. Not quite a half, but nearly half. So it's way more efficient. Um, and by the time you get up to 10 euros, it's even more efficient, whatever. So PayPal is fantastic for a one-off once a year or whatever. Just throw Bart a few bob. Um, if you want to pro- con- contribute regularly, which is probably the most helpful way to contribute because bills come in every month. Um, and the idea here is that the listener income should balance out the bills. And that's Patreon. So with Patreon, you pledge a small dollar amount per show that's released, exactly two shows a month. So if you want to give me $5 a month, pledge two fifty. That would be extremely generous, by the way. If you want to give me you know, $2 a month, pledge $1. That's the basic idea. The great way is that they still use PayPal as their back end, the Patreon people. But basically, all of your pledges to all of the different podcasts you listen to get taken out of your PayPal account as one single transaction. So it's one set of fees spread across all of that. And then Patreon pay each podcaster one transaction a month with all of their their contributions from all of their members coming in one giant big transaction. So it's only one fee paid in it that way. And they also keep a small fee for themselves for doing all the work. But again, it's just a one fee. So it's a really efficient way to collect together lots and lots of small dollar donations so that at neither end does PayPal run away with all the money. Very, very cool idea, Patreon. And again, because it's a regular income, it helps me to budget, helps me to plan. So I really, really, really appreciate the Patreon support. Uh, so thank you very much to everyone who does or ever did subscribe to Patreon. I'm very aware that we're in difficult economic times. So if you used to be a Patreon and now you're not, do not feel in any way bad about that, right? I'm just the guy on the internet making a podcast. I pale in insignificance compared to putting food on your table. No one should ever put themselves under any sort of stress to help me podcast. That would be ridiculous. Don't do it. Uh, you can also support the show simply by tweeting about it for as long as Twitter exists. Mastodoning about it, I guess, tooting about it. Uh, posting about it on, on that evil place, Facebook. Just telling a friend in actual meat space. Basically spread the word. It really helps the show. Anyway, I've uh, prattled on, prattled on. 
I've talked for so long, I can't even make my own idiom. I can't even get like cliches right anymore. So it's definitely time to stop. You will find me at bartb.ie. Remember, show notes are at let'sdashtalk.ie. Until next month, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Yeah, I think just a straight ad, don't you? Yeah. Like what? What would we say? Like tech fan podcast uh, or... Are you are you interested in technology and gadgets? Uh-huh. Do you... Um want to listen to two guys who know technology and gadgets are we claiming to be those guys yes <laughs> well there, there we go are we claiming to be that be those guys you be the judge tech fan podcast no that'll work let's yeah? use that as yeah? an ad <laughs>